Hey, everyone. Happy to have you here for another episode of Legacy Matters. Today, as usual, we will talk about whatever comes up with a slight leaning toward discussions of preserving your legacy, preparing for things to come, and sharing stories we find amusing. All right, we're starting. So, uh, hello and welcome, everyone. I'm going to do, uh, we're not going to do long introductions, but uh, Kate's here with me. How's it going, Kate? Good. Hi, Sam. Hey. Been a while. Yeah, it has. This is, uh, it's fun. We've got a, a few scheduled here for the next several weeks that are real interesting. We're not going to do a lot of date because the last one we recorded, it took us like two or three months to get it out. That is true. There's a total failure on our part. It's sad, yet true. Yeah, and they, but there isn't, um, these aren't time sensitive. No. These are, these are Legacy Matters podcasts, so you can listen to this anytime. Um, there might be some, some time-related things in it, but let's just say it's sometime in December 2021, and yep. everything's going great. Yep. And uh, hopefully we get this out sooner than the last one. Uh, but we'll start, and we've got a guest with us today, Kent Honnell. Honnell. God, I had it in there. I was yep, going to do it. I always freeze it. up. I always freeze up right at the end. <laughs> um, Kent Honnell. And and I think, uh, you know, as I was saying, a four-letter word, H-O-N-L, correct? Mm-hmm. I, maybe you can understand why someone who's not familiar with it would say it the wrong way, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the old country, it'd be Honnell. Yeah. You and I both do some German, right? Mm. I? Yeah. So um, that doesn't help. Wieso nicht? No. No. Scandinavian and German, not yeah. close. Wir, wir gehen nicht weiter auf Deutsch. Uh, ich war in Deutschland für uh, drei Monate. Und uh, that's how I learned. Mm. I learned enough German to be at least marginally conversational oh, okay. in three months. And you were in high school, right? Or something? Yeah, yeah, I like, took four years. Um, in, way long ago. Right. Uh, I, but I did visit Munich. Okay. I was, I was in Germany for a week. Oder wie kann snacken Norsk? Nein. No idea what you just said. Or we could speak Norwegian. Yeah, oh, I was like, but nice. I'm pretty sure the answer is no. no. Okay. <laughs> So you yeah, got a couple, <laughs> got a couple yeah. of languages in you. Well, yeah. And you have yeah, two cool. Minnesotans that have no Scandinavian heritage in them. Um, wow. I am French, Canadian, Irish, and German. Mm. True. Irish I'm, and German. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, And it, it I've learned uh, in the last few years to be uh, sort of equally upset over the fact that I know so little Ojibwe, too. Like, yeah. oh. it's really, uh, like, mm-hmm. it's... It just kind of pissed me off that eventually I realized, like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. I live in a land where there was a language spoken before I got here. Mm-hmm. Right, and everything is named after, you know, mm-hmm. every lake, every city. I know. A and lot no of them. At the mm-hmm. time when I was a kid, like, like, granted, I'm sort of coming to it on my own now, but, you know, I'm in my mid-40s. It's, like, tough for me to to sit and think about doing all of this. But Well, yeah. I, I wish there had been more... I. I really appreciate that there's a lot more of that these days than there was. Well, we could start off with Buju Nijibamadezi Akiwag. Yeah, Anin. Apitandagoziwag Mekadawizi Jig. Kent, how many languages do you speak? Oh, English, German, Norwegian. I'm working on Ojibwe, a smattering of Dakota, French, Finnish. Um, I'm kind of just a sponge for languages. Ah, I love oh. it. But that's awesome. Yeah, Apitandagozi Wag Mekadawizi Jig is um, Black Lives Matter in Ojibwe. Okay. Wow. So, well, oh, we... that's why I always kind of customarily start off these things too with uh, the land acknowledgement. Yeah, if you would, that would be great. Sure. I, I, you know, I don't yet feel comfortable. Like I don't. It's. I'm finally getting comfortable to the point where I can I can start to make introductions. But it's like when I started learning German, living in Germany. Like I'm not going to start some off a conversation that I'm just going to fumble right away. Mm. But I love hearing them and kind of getting the tradition started. Yeah. So if you would, that would be awesome. Well, we're in Minneapolis, 
in the Grain Belt Complex, right? Is that That's correct. our location? Which is on the ancestral lands of the Dakota people. Okay, so this is Dakota land. Yes. Yeah. And the Ojibwe's were a bit farther north, but you know they would uh, negotiate kind of a fluid boundary, as I understand it. Okay. But yeah, this is Dakota territory. I did not know that. That's. Yeah, I mean, this See? is the. Here we go. Well, it's the finally the cultural awakening, I guess, of this. You know, we had Bradley Harrington on, who's become a. a tribal partner no well a business partner just a friend and a business partner and um i love the work we're doing there and i love Mm. everything that he's brought all the all the information he's been slowly spoon feeding me i'm like an infant like a toddler Mm. when it comes to the the knowledge and the understanding of of the cultural uh, like so even a land acknowledgement like i'm just finally becoming aware of how this all this all going and then introducing myself and saying miigwech and and feeling comfortable Mm. saying these things well do you know uh anton troyer or have you had him on yeah so he's supposed to have come down anton's son uh robert went to my camp that i worked at on Bemidji. so Mm -hmm. i've known the troyer family forever i mean anton's tony as we all call him but anyway tony's great Mm -hmm. Mm. um but he's uh stays up in bemidji more than Mm -hmm. you know but yeah, do you know Anton? I have bought a bunch of his books, had him sign them. We're huge groupies of Anton Troyer. Yeah. And um, just saw him at Mill City Museum at his book release last week, the Ojibwe Cultural Toolbox. Yep. And he told me that um, coming in January, there will be Rosetta Stone for the Ojibwe language. Oh, that's so incredible. I said, I'm going to be in line for that because a couple of years ago, he said this was in progress, and I asked him, well, as an ally, as a white person, is it appropriation if I learn Ojibwe language, or right. is that helpful? And he said, no, we need all the help we can get. If right. you're interested, you should, by all means, study the language. So, yeah, yeah I want to do that. Yeah. But, I mean, isn't that even sort of an interesting question to have to ask, whether that's appropriation? I mean, the, yeah. Because that's the level of, I feel like, the level of lack of understanding exactly how to be appropriate. And if if you, mm, mm-hmm. I've talked about this too, we had Venus de Mars on, and, and so, it, like, if you're, if you're meeting a transgender person for the first time or something, it's the same, some people have prejudices, I know that, and other people are very open, but they're, but they're maybe uncomfortable with just the language or the knowledge of how to just introduce the, like, just to get past mm. that first little hurdle. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, you can get to the human side of, yeah. of anything. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's sort of the way I've felt the blockage between me and becoming more close to the Native American people that I've known over the years is really just like that initial conversation. Like, how do we just mm-hmm. walk down the street? How do I say hi in the, in the right way and not be a dick? You know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the first step is just putting yourself into the vulnerable space to ask the question because for the whole history since Europeans got to the North American continent they didn't bother to ask no (laughs) no it's just like hey we have carte blanche to just take the place over but now we're you know if if you're at least trying to be an ally it starts with asking yeah Yeah. i like that you use the word vulnerable Mm -hmm. i think that's an appropriate word and i would rather risk the vulnerability and have the uncomfortable moment because ultimately i want to show my respect Mm -hmm. by calling by using the right greeting or the right pronoun i'd rather just like do that right away and not have that person walk away and go god yeah but think of for how many people that vulnerability is the key to the inability to do it because they can't Mm -hmm. be vulnerable in that moment like Mm -hmm. because they're you know there are just a lot of people who don't want to feel foolish for even a second Mm -hmm. so they're just not going to do it but someone gave me a good piece of advice that i find fits in many situations in life get comfortable being uncomfortable yeah Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah okay it doesn't last very long for in most cases, but mm-hmm. get comfortable being uncomfortable. Well, plus it's the it's the right and friendly thing to do. Yeah. I mean, if you mm-hmm. once you learn to do it, it's a lot easier. But I just know there is a it is a barrier. Yeah, it sure, sure yeah. can be. So, 
Well, you've got you, so. I mean, <laughs> I came across your information, Kent, on on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and it's because I saw something that connected you to David out at Trees Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't haven't even personally met the guy before, but. Okay. We just got accepted into this cohort of a new program called the Green Communities Leadership Institute. Okay. So I think that's how that connection was made. That's, but yep. yeah, right. And yep. because of that connection, I thought, oh well, here's another person that you know I'll reach out to. So you're you're in here, and I figured we would talk. I didn't know what we would talk about because this is what mm. happens when the new guy moves into the neighborhood and we invite him over to chat, right? <laughs> But I figured we'd talk trees because um, one of the things that I noticed right away when I saw your name in LinkedIn um, was that, you, you know, I'm used to the word arborist, but you're an arborologist, mm, mm-hmm. which that, I yeah I want to hear the explanation for, but it, I feel like maybe since I didn't actually look it up, which is what a person, a normal person might do, um, mm-hmm. I concocted a few sort of notions about what an arborologist oh, is. That's intriguing. Yeah. So well, <laughs> I want to hear those first before I tell you. That's right. I didn't yeah. want you to tell right. before I. Yeah. So so I mean, at first I thought, well, an arborologist, like, like okay, that sounds like maybe a, you know, like a tree doctor. We'll start there, tree doctor, right? But then I'm thinking, like, but what what kind of doctor? Like, is this like a tree surgeon? No, this is a tree, like, diagnostics doctor or something. But then I was thinking mixologist, too. And I'm like, like, mm. you know, I'm mm-hmm. trying to put in the different ologists that I know. So, it's like, is this actually someone who helps trees party, perhaps, with one another? Or, like... Maybe you should have looked it up. Psychologists, like, do trees... Yeah, do trees... Are psychologists, like, I, like is the tree... Is the tree potentially needing to express an emotion that it's having a hard time. And then I went back to Mm. tree doctor, but I don't Mm. know what, Mm -hmm. where can you please? Well, I think if you had tried to look it up, you would have been met with zero success because it's a completely made up word inside of (laughs) (laughs) the company I've worked for, for nearly 30 years is rainbow tree care. Yeah. Yeah. Very familiar with rainbow. Yeah. And (laughs) Along about 2012 or so, the founder of the company, Tom Prosser, created this position for me to occupy, which is the arborolog- excuse me, arborologist position. And now there's a handful of others of us that have this title, too. And basically what it is, is um, I get to be one of these geeks who takes the scientific research and translates it into how the practitioners can apply it. Hmm. You know, and that there's... Generally, these two camps, like the people out there doing the work, getting dirty, climbing the trees, you know, helping them live good lives. And then there's the researchers in academia with their statistical charts and research papers and stuff that you can't even read. You know, it's not in plain English. So I'm the guy in between who kind of reads that stuff. And that brings me to a lot of places like conferences i've been invited to speak in hong kong and around the country and do different presentations and things like that i also teach courses at hennepin technical college up in brooklyn park but not 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 in arborology though because uh arboriculture you have to start off at the basics and (laughs) if you're really along for the ride you know, then I'll take you up through the ranks of becoming an arborologist someday. And so I'm on the vanguard of basically, since it's made up word, I get to kind of make up what that is too. Yes. Yeah, that's like super fun, actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm super privileged to be in this spot. And, you know, um, I've always been the guy figuring out his own way, not in a paint by numbers kind of approach to life. So I'm really fortunate to have landed in a spot like this. Um, so really, I think of it as someone who takes the research and makes it accessible to people outside of the ivory tower or the laboratory and applies it in the world. I mean, I think that actually makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and I, after all of this is done, we'll talk world canopy stuff because this is mm. that's super interesting to me that you've, you're, you act as a translator between. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to that. But um, so that is interesting. That is not what I would have 
thought of, and I'm kind of glad I didn't look it up. Yeah. Well, yeah, you would have been discouraged. Yeah. Because there's I'd, no place that's defined other than at Rainbow Tree Care, really. I'd have found you and four other pictures, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> they made this up. And, <laughs> you know, really, as I'm in the advanced stages of career and everything, like there's the arborologist thing, but really what I want to be when I grow up is a druid. Oh. So I'm working You're on that. Close to dressed for the part. I'm right. yeah, like I said, I mean, I'm working on it, and you know, I got some of my regalia. Like, and, see. and is this um, so? Where would where would a druid? What part of culture would a druid come from? I think Ireland. When I hear that, or mm. northern, at least northern Europe, British Isles, but I don't really know the answer. Yeah, traditionally, it's a. British Isles thing, but the way I think of it is expanding beyond that to like whatever place you're in, tuning into what's going on with nature. I like that. Even any more. place in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I, I have a shaman that I visit on a regular basis. I haven't seen her lately, but I miss Jamie. But anyway, um, but you know, being a, being kind of a regular Joe from, from central Minnesota, well, whatever. Elk River <laughs> of all places, right? Right. There were no shamans in town. <laughs> I mean, you grew up in Elk River, too. I mean, I like, I like, like oh, beat God. up just for saying the word right. shaman. Like, right. Get him. Yeah. <laughs> thwack, thwack, thwack. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think back on my childhood as it being a bad thing. I had a great group of friends, and, and I would say that you know, we were fortunate enough to hang out in a relatively open group, but there was no diversity in our group. We didn't, we couldn't plan for that nor mm. have gotten away from it. It just didn't exist in the place we right. grew up. And there, there was a, a somewhat pronounced resistance to things like caring about nature mm. or thinking that there might be something outside of regular christianity as far as a spirituality of the world and stuff right 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 right. so like the idea the first time i went and saw jamie the shaman i had in my head i had to get past this sort of like oh god what's this weird old hippie person gonna be like you know that's what i was thinking right Mm -hmm. got to know her love love her dearly and ultimately very much connected with the experience of exploring my own uh, you know, inner thoughts and ability to uh, meditate. So I, I just, when I hear Druid, I think Dungeons and Dragons or something, or I think, you mm. know, like these other... Like, Stereotypes. Like where, yes, and I know I have to get right past that, but you just... Right. So you're talking like just more of a spiritual, would you put them in the same camp as sort of shaman-esque type stuff? Yeah, I mean, it could be, and that... um you know, we think of what we know is the the druid dancing around Stonehenge or something like that. Maybe that was the thing. The fact is, we don't even really know what those people did, unfortunately. But true, what is thought of as modern druidry is much more like directly tuning into nature and recognizing that it's not a concept or something outside of us. Like we're directly part of it even when we're not mm. aware of it. Like every time you breathe in, you're breathing in the exhalation of a tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And think of, well, this is where the Druid restarts for me, is the, the pattern language in the world, mm-hmm. that if we tune into patterns that are reflected throughout, like the shape of the tree is the same as the shape of our lung, it's just inside out. Right. And that the... The lung takes in what the tree exhales, and it's a two-way continuous process. And that that pattern of branching is also in our neural circuit. It's in watersheds. It's everywhere in the world where something has to happen that involves distribution and all the opposite of tributaries are distributaries. You know, tributaries and creeks feed into rivers when something's being collected and distributaries are when things have to be spread out. Mm-hmm. Sure. And you have a finite amount of space, like in your lungs, to collect oxygen and 
all that. Like nature solves certain problems with branching patterns and you can find spirals, waves, fractal repetition. All these things are kind of like a language that the world speaks to us. We're just not tuned into learning it. Mm-hmm. Right. So like I said, speak German, Norwegian, learning Ojibwe, all these things like languages that there's actually a language of the world that's speaking to us, but we're too dense to take it in. Most of the time we're scurrying around like busy, stressed little ants. And yeah, I think we do way too much of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what Druidry to me is, is like taking my years of caring for trees and taking it beyond just the technical science level at this point and looking at it as a, like a spiritual quest and like a relationship to the world and a participation and reciprocity with it as an active thing that's not just a concept. Yeah, and I imagine that that whole line of thinking isn't, isn't too far off of many indigenous sort of understandings. Of, I mean, you know, I don't want to stereotype and put them all into the same category because that's not the way it actually works, right? But, mm-hmm. but I think sort of generally speaking, prior to, I don't know, sort of Anglo-white sort of religious thinking or something, I don't know if it was the Greeks, Romans, if it was after that, but somewhere along the line we diverged from this sort of natural understanding that I think I think it's self-evident too. Like I, I've kind of resisted the idea of being a part of any religious group but always considered myself spiritual because i look at the world and i'm like there's more going on here than we can see i don't know what it is i don't know how to explain it but if you look around there's really cool stuff all over anyway so but i think that sounds it sounds familiar to me and yeah i've mm-hmm. taken a lot of interest in i read a lot of articles about the mycelial network of the planet too mm-hmm. and how how, yeah, the lungs, and then you've got these neural pathways that, that go mm-hmm. around the planet. I mean, there's just way too much about the whole thing that, that kind of puts us into, well, we're clearly out of balance with the natural world, but we're also part of it. So what are we? You know, are we a, are we a cancer on it, or are we a, mm-hmm. you know, something that's gone awry, or are we just reshaping it in some way, or is it reshaping us? I don't know. All hard, to, hard mm-hmm. but it's fun to think about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we get to choose. Yeah, um, to some extent, all of all of those ways of being are determined by our expectations, the boundaries that the culture and the mindset builds around what you're up to on a daily basis. You know, like you know, braiding sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. No, I'm not a. I'm not a great oh. reader. You I should wish. have her on. <laughs> <laughs> and I should read Anton's stuff. Like, I, oh, I yeah. haven't checked out. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, everything you ever wanted to ask about a Native American or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's. I, yeah. I mean, I should just be doing this. But Well, if I can go on a tangent about Please. Robin Wall Kimmerer and her work, she is a scientist, a forester, botanist, I believe is her discipline. And she's also a Native Potawatomi woman. And. She has found a way to merge, well, braiding sweetgrass is about merging the scientific knowledge with native practices and the teachings of the plants themselves. Okay. And coming out like with her own way of proposing like humans are not necessarily a destructive force in the world if they take the original teachings, the instructions from native elders and the plants that you can live with participation, reciprocity, use the natural world in a way that doesn't destroy it, but actually help is, helps it flourish. So yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't think by I don't think there's any preordained reason why we would have to be a destructive force. We've we've mm-hmm. chosen. I mean, we've chosen the path we're on, whatever that is, and we could choose a different path at any point, and mm-hmm. we don't seem very keen to. I think systemically it's hard for us to make large changes like that but but at the same time it's not impossible it's not impossible and it seems to be being forced upon us i mean i -hmm. would say life is uh, it happens at different scales for different things right but like my kids are going to school i have 14 a 12 and a five-year-old they're going to school in a school that is much kinder 
than the school I was mm, in. Mm-hmm. And it's teaching things that they would have never even come close to teaching us when I was a kid. So there's, whether we've gotten as far as we need to get in that amount of time, I, there's an argument to be had, I understand that. But we're doing better, mm-hmm. and hopefully that progression continues. But um, yeah, I mean, we, we've got a long ways to go to get to to be living more harmoniously with the world around us, for sure. And what that looks like, whether we can still have technology and all the rest of these things and live in harmony with it, I don't know. But. Yeah, it's a interesting time to be alive, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah it's like <laughs> way too much to get into, of course. But it is definitely... Uh, I mean, it's an interesting time, interesting time, no doubt. So, well, I didn't, I didn't know all of that. So, um, yeah, Robin Wall Kimmer, I looked her up. Make sure I. Yeah, that book is one I've reread probably three or four times. Okay. And it just blows my mind every time. Braiding sweetgrass, I see. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Well, should we take a quick little break and then? Uh, Let's do it and come on back. Yeah, we'll do sure. we'll do our little break and we'll get to know you a little better. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, and then I'll probably pop over to that restroom. Great. Okay. I'll be right back. All right. Hello, Kate. Hey, Sam. Hey. Um, so we're in the middle, and you know we've got these advertisements. We have to put it in the middle. We sure do. Yep. And uh, this is a pre-recorded. Uh, break section that we do but I can say this has definitely been one of the best shows we've ever recorded for sure right and we want to thank everyone for listening uh, yes we do thank, thanks for tuning in and uh, sticking with us through the, the middle here and uh, we'll start the second half we'll, we'll be right back alright I'm coming back that's what, what I think of as sort of the uh, enjoyable nature of our freeform conversation though I think mm, listening mm-hmm. to it is it's not for everyone you know they don't know what's going on i get it but we're back with kent honnell yes honnell mm-hmm. yeah i did it Nailed it. i did it <laughs> so proud of myself uh yeah what uh so where did you grow up i grew up in roseau minnesota up on the canadian border by lake of the woods oh yeah yeah that's way up there way up north Yep. Hockey Town. Yes, that's what everybody. Yep, state tournament says. like every year. Mm-hmm. Is Roseau one of those towns where there's is it Polaris or one of the big? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, I've been up to War Road. I was going to mm-hmm. say that's the other hockey town that comes to mind up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, although I think it might be fair to say they are all hockey towns in that yeah, part well, of the state. And, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. sure. But it's yeah. also those are communities that have one central industry that's kind of their, you know, primary mm-hmm. employer. Is that right? Right. It was Polaris in Roseau and Marvin, Marvin Windows. Windows. And they had Christian Brothers hockey sticks back in the day, too. Mm-hmm. That was a factory in Warroad. Okay. Sweet. And then it was home to Honnell's Bakery of Roseau, Minnesota. That's oh. where I grew up learning the bakery trade with grandpa and uncles and dad. I love that. So, yeah, that's kind of a bygone era, you know, where the little small town businesses all overlap functions and... The kids learn the trade from the elders and all that stuff. Like that's all pretty much unraveled at this point. Yeah, it is pretty darn dead. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah. a shame because I, there's nothing I love more than a bakery. Well, and I mm. I enjoy baking. So um, my family, you know, my dad bakes and my mother used to bake. My grandmother, and but not professionally. But that means you were like getting up real early. Oh yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> when it's 46 below that's no exaggeration in january up there on the border and my dad and i would roll out get to the bakery by at like four not well 3 30 we're at the bakery yeah and i remember making money as a kid doing that it was good and you get home by noon and think oh i've got a whole day's work and i made this money none of my peers are hardly out of bed yet and then but i got to sit out on the couch and just like chill for a little bit and just pass out and yeah. just sleep and then wake up at eight o'clock at night and like it really screws <laughs> and, up your and then you've day. missed everything yeah, yeah right. right so that was uh it took some getting used to but that was just weekends when i was a kid okay yeah bakeries are interesting because i know a lot of them they have a hard time continuing to persist because there's just not 
people willing to get up at three o'clock in the morning and get into the bakery and yeah start the donuts or the bread or whatever it was just one step less intense than uh, dairy farming you know because the yeah. cows have to get milked seven days a week like right. at least you have one day off running a bakery <laughs> right. right 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 well and <laughs> and when it's that cold and you're milking oh yeah oh god i mean that's so tough too i'm sure i i had the privilege of you know spending some time on the farms like as a kid never oh we didn't own them ourselves we we rented on a farm and, mm-hmm. and had participated in all of what it takes to keep a farm afloat and mm. well my mom grew up that way and she didn't want to go back so <laughs> that was that was, <laughs> that was enough yeah <laughs> yeah my dad's older sister and her family have a large dairy farm in Stewartville southern minnesota and we didn't go to camp but we went to the farm during summer vacation like for Mm -hmm. a week or two every summer and it was some of the most fun i've ever had oh yeah like but they're they they never get a day off ever Mm -hmm. i mean um it's a special commitment (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean that's uh it's still one of the most intense things you can do. And they've even automated a lot of that stuff. And that Sure. But there were great stories I've got from aunts and uncles and grandparents, you know, like about, um, I remember my uncle telling me about, um, he grew up right at the time when tractors took over and horses were oh, sort wow. of being retired from function in the farms. But he said... When he was a kid, there was a snowstorm, and they had gone over, the family had gone over to visit the neighboring farm, and they went in the sleigh with the horses. And they thought, well, during this blizzard, should we just go home, hunker down? And his dad said, well, no, the horse can still take us home in the blizzard. And so they spent the evening and then piled back in the sled, and they couldn't even see a foot in front of them. And the horse was just pulling, 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 and then stopped. And he realized they're in front of the barn at home again. Because <laughs> oh, the horse knew his way home, even through the snowstorm. Of course and he did. My uncle said, you will not get a tractor to do that for you. Ever. <laughs> no. Nope. Nope. Take no. that, modern times. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, animals and their odd ability to do things like that. I mean, that, that's, uh, when was that Armistice Day storm? when so many people died. Just was it 40, 41, somewhere around there? Something like that. Yeah. And, you know, probably just post-horse. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, fewer and fewer people yeah. having horses. Well, that would have been November, because November 11th is Armistice Day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I just know that there were, there were people who, you know, 50 feet from their front door, yeah. 100 mm-hmm. yards from the house, because they couldn't see. Yeah. And to think of how weather forecasting has advanced so much. Like, we just won't get caught unawares like that as much anymore. Like, we can see that stuff coming more. Yep. Yep. So, you grew up way up north. Mm -hmm. You, uh, I think you mentioned in the email that you you do frequent the boundary waters and stuff. Yeah, you do a lot of paddling. Mm, Yeah. um, Got to do one or two trips a year up to the boundary waters. I've never done these epic canoe journeys to hudson's bay or anything like you have but <laughs> the, wow. well that's kind of flattering um, well, they're the same thing just a little further north yeah although i started to think the boundary waters is getting to be too much like midtown manhattan you know it's just it's too populated pretty, yeah so that's i love it but kind of like uh, ah. i've only paddled the boundary waters i think three times now okay and, and i've gone uh, yeah, each of those has been in the fall when there are mm-hmm. in late October when there are very few people. Yeah. So, but the Quetico is just north of there, and that place has got That's almost what I was no one in say. it. Like, mm-hmm. You just, get the passport out, and you go up to the Quetico. Yeah. Life. When the border opens up again, yeah. more readily. That's probably what I should do. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very accessible. Um, it is a little more remote. Um, I would say, you know that remoteness would lead to uh, the potential for it to be a little more dangerous, but I don't think it's particularly dangerous. I don't think, you know, mm-hmm. Quetico is still a pretty darn safe place. Um, but far fewer people and, and much, much more open. You want to get 
further out than that, you let me know and I'll take you anywhere. Sure. <laughs> well, when uh, travel becomes more of a thing we can do, I'd really like to get up into Swedish Lapland oh. or up into Sami country in Scandinavia. Because I have some ancestry up that way. And oh, that that's a lot of wide open territory up there. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah, that's that's more um, like uh, none of it type stuff, or or that's all tundra and, and mm-hmm. little trees, correct? Yeah, by the time you get up, you know, way far. But if you're down in the region, more like uh, Wilhelmina, Dorotea, that's where my great grandmother came from, and from the Swedish side, there's still taiga, boreal forest okay. there. So, yeah, there's some ancestral research travel I'd like to do yeah. out in the old country. That would be great. But we'll see with uh, the virus and all that stuff. It will pass. It will. Yeah. It, you know, it'll, it'll turn into, as all pandemics have, it, like, it'll turn into something that we are able to cope with in a far better way than we are currently. And say. in the meantime, like I guess what matters to me most is just the wild places, the Boundary Waters is wild enough. And I tell this to the people that I'm training as arborists coming up as like, if you're going to be caring for trees in an urban environment and you want to do it at a level of mastery beyond just sort of this technical thing, like you have to spend regular time in wild places where trees live in their untrammeled state, like according to how they evolved. Because otherwise you're just like a doctor that lives on the sick ward you don't right. really see the full optimum potential of human health. Right. right. So you have to spend time in the wild places where trees are in a goalless frame of mind, too. I mean, that's kind of getting away from our bustling, scurrying, ant-like life. You know, like you have to take regular time to get away from that and not go to a place and think, okay, I'm going to sit here by this tree and learn 10 things about how I can become a better <laughs> arborist and I'm going to up, 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 you know, and it's right. not Ready, like that. Go. Like. Number There's one. the goalless frame of mind is something as Americans we're just not attuned to doing. Like, just go out in a wild place and be there. And if you are in Minneapolis, like you can do that along River Road in the oh for the sure. gorge. Yeah. You know, like take what you get where you can. And so it's very privileged of me, of course, to say, oh, the Boundary Waters isn't wild enough. You know, but <laughs> <laughs> so, I know I get it. It so, is. It is. You're right. But I mean, that's kind of where the, the druid thing folds back in for me. It's like, yeah, if you want to come along on this ride of being an arborist and then an arborologist, and they, like, there's levels beyond just the technical, you know, scurrying around doing this. Like, right. who wants to go along for that ride? This is what I'm exploring. Right. Well, and if you're going to go through all the trouble to prepare for a trip like that, make it make it to the place that suits you. And if, mm-hmm. and if that means finding a a more distant secluded place so be it you're packed go yeah yeah it's sort of the i mean it's it's kind of the mystique of the like striking out into some area that's relatively untouched but like i i spent a little time on the river down near hastings and i mean mm. you can find these wild places that are extraordinarily wild just right close to town here too, oh yeah if you look like around on vermilion river uh well um, down on the mississippi but oh okay yeah spring lake park area mm. so i even hunt down there and mm. um i'm i'm such a an ineffective hunter that i'm more of a naturalist like there's oh. a fine line between the two and i mm-hmm. and i'm totally fine with that because i'm not really there it, you know i I deer hunt at my brother's farm and that's, that's deer harvesting. That's fine. But, um, most of the time I spent, spend hunting is an elaborate way to say, I just want to go hang out in the woods. Yeah. Commune with the woods Mm -hmm. or the river or whatever. I just want to spend time outside. That's an interesting thing. I notice about a lot of people who deer hunt and they're not the kind of people you'd think would go to a Zen center or something like that. Just the average Joe or Jane kind of person but they just live for their fall deer hunt and ask them why. Well, it's the one time I can just sit there and be quiet, you know? And it's like, well, that's kind of like for a lot of workaday people, their Zen, if you will. Sure. Like their one sanctioned time to not be on devices and 
responding to all the duties, responsibilities, workload stuff they have to do. Like they're supposed to be in the woods and be just super quiet for a while. And yep. people crave that and yeah. they don't call it Zen, but I think that's kind of like Zen for regular Joes and Janes. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely can be. Yeah. I mean, I, I fish and you know, if I can, if I can get out on a, two week canoe trip or a month long canoe trip, I know I'm doing Zen then, Mm -hmm. you know, I I know that the cadence of paddling for 10 hours a day, uh, asking, I always went with kids, you know, like asking the kid in the front of the boat to keep it quiet for a little while. Like I'm talking like six hours, buddy. (laughs) You know, they're like, Oh God. Right. You know, but when you get, when you put your head down and you really get into that, um, and you're listening to the, the sound of the water and the, few birds you hear or the wind in the trees or whatever it is like yeah i know that i'm doing zen then mm-hmm. but um you know fishing even nearish to an industrial site uh looking at the the juxtaposition or whatever between the the untouched looking islands and the and the pretty bluffs and then the coke oil refinery behind it <laughs> and, but it's no. it's so weird yeah. but it's so like, oh one of these things doesn't belong <laughs> it doesn't and it does though it's like i don't like it i don't want it to be there but i know it's that a that's, different experience than when you are in the wilderness and you don't have that distraction but i'm still listen. able to be zen Yeah, because Mm. I can still sit there and appreciate that no matter what we're doing. Yeah, whether that's I mean, I drove a truck there. Yeah, right. Like, can't can't drive the truck there if I don't have them doing that. But but nature is still doing its thing by reclaiming its spaces and just trying it. It would, I believe, live in harmony with us if we allowed it to, if we wanted Mm. it to. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think about those things when I'm sitting there. But well, there's a. strain in arboriculture right now is conservation arboriculture mm-hmm. and they're inviting people to think in terms of tree time you know like we know an individual tree has a much longer lifespan than an individual human but tree time on an almost geological frame of reference you know like the realization that trees have been on planet earth for something like 385 million years in some form mm-hmm and Homo sapiens about 300,000, I guess, right? Yeah. So when you frame it that way, you know, and this idea of humans as these busy ants scurrying around in their busy lives and Robin Wall Kimmer are looking at the trees and the plants as elders and they're our teachers. We're not the ones in charge having dominion over anything. Like, who do we think we are? That I, I put that into a timeline framework like 385 million years of tree life if you put a timeline of one centimeter equals a year that's a timeline that would extend from washington dc to los angeles and then homo sapiens timeline would be about two and a half miles (laughs) and like we could go out and walk that in about you know half an hour easily Right. right And so if we're going around like being these heroic arborists and saving trees, like, okay, that's great. But, you know, what are we actually saving but maybe ourselves at best if we're... Right. And the trees pat you on the head and go, oh, you're cute. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, why are you being such jerks? By right. the way, why do you have yeah. to be, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's reframing it for me, at least, is like, we think we're all that. And, well, actually, fully fleshing out this timeline so homo sapiens two and a half mile long timeline homo sapiens in cities that would be seven thousand years or so (laughs) you know that's the less than the length of a football field at a centimeter per year and then the length of time we've had scientifically enlightened arboriculture would be the length of about a yardstick at best right compared to our subject which extends from washington to la yeah right yeah. So, you know, we kind of have to get over ourselves on that perspective, you know, framing it that way. Yeah. In the spirit of getting over ourselves when it comes to trees, I recently learned something and I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on it that that trees communicate with each other underground um and w- that's one of the many things that we haven't given trees a whole lot of credit for. Additionally, that 
if a, a nearby tree is struggling health-wise, the others will sacrifice themselves uh, to allow that tree to get more nutrients, water, whatever, to try and help heal it. Mm, mm-hmm. And I found that uh, that gave me a whole new respect for the. I have I, I live in Lake Elmo, and we have quite a wooded lot with some very mature trees on it. And it gave me a whole new respect for them that, well, you guys have been here longer than this house. You guys have been here longer than lots and lots of things in this area. And you're still here. And, you know, I love those trees. But um, the the way that they communicate and help each other and have relationships with each other blew my mind. A and mystery to you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like it's really interesting that whole idea of you know the traditional model is competition that they're all competing for light and space in the soil, water resources, all this kind of thing, and they have to be in competition or they're not going to pass on their genetic code to more progeny and outcompete everybody else. So yeah, there's an element of that, but then we see. Well, they cooperate, and not just within the same species, right. but between other species. Right. But there's still the pushback against that, saying, well, it wouldn't make sense for them to do that genetically. But when you look at it from the perspective of the fungal network, right. it's not necessarily the trees having some kind of willful agency about transferring carbohydrates. It's in the interest of the fungal network that's getting energy from all the trees to keep as many of them alive as it can Mm. so it might be okay this pine over here is failing so the birch over there appears to be giving some energy to it Mm -hmm. but it's actually the fungal network going oh i gotta keep this pine going as well so i'll funnel some of the sugars over there sure kind of delegating resources as it sees fit to its own benefit uh, but everybody else too yeah i mean what's mind-blowing is the trees might just be like the cattle on the sugar farm for the mycorrhizal fungi. Right. right. And it's really the fungus network that's running everything. Yeah. And you can view it as cooperation, competition. It just depends on how you're looking at it and framing it. And what gets really interesting is humans kind of have a need to couch things in stories or concepts. Like we relate as humans more to stories than to data sets. Yeah. You know, we use data sets in science to, you know, really objectively measure things, but we're still relate more to stories. So if it suits our frame of mind to think of cooperation, you know, then we'll think in those terms. Or if it suits us more to think in terms of competition, then we think in those terms. But in reality, the world just is what it is, and that's where the Zen comes in. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, take away your concepts about yeah. the world. And realize yeah. that's just all they are. Yeah. Yeah, the world is what it is. Is just, uh, I mean, there's, you think of just the immense amount of crap that's around us in, in just this building or this space or all of the other buildings and all of the other space and how little of it has any bearing on, on anything, really. Yet we live mm-hmm. in and around it and we cherish things and we protect our systems and and then there's just the most beautiful thing you ever see is just like a, tr- a leaf on the ground or something. You know, there's mm-hmm. just it, it. None of it really matters or, or makes yeah. sense. I would say. I, I don't know how to frame that well. I know my boys and I watched a, a couple of documentaries. I think they were put out by. Uh, I want to say it was Scottish BBC, but we watched them, uh, and and one of them sort of delved into what you're talking about with that timeline. Mm-hmm. And and kind of pose the question like are are we sure that trees don't cultivate human life or animal life on the planet basically mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. and and is it maybe the mycelial network or whatever that's that's bringing that about but look at what what they've done to ensure that they can have us living in these places and they need us to be there anyway and by the way you're kind of plant food eventually so mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. oh yeah another win for the plants uh, yeah yeah it was just a very interesting way to and and they put a lot of science into kind of why 
not not necessarily trees as like sort of sentient beings, but just as an intelligent thing, mm-hmm. you know, in one way or another, fighting harder than we've ever had to fight to get life started in a in on a rocky surface of a planet where there were so mm-hmm. few things, and then making life and you know all of our soil and everything else is mm-hmm. all tied to that. And then the other thing they we watched another one about. Uh, Dinosaurs and they and they just focused briefly on this dinosaur species that had been around. I believe they said it basically existed for thirty-seven million years without very much evolutionary uh, differentiation from itself the entirety of that time. And I, I don't know humans at at three hundred thousand, maybe five hundred thousand, if you're taking mm-hmm. the long assessments. That's pretty pretty amazing to think of one species that was. Mm-hmm. so successful for yeah, so long as right. the same thing and to go unchanged like oh yeah, this model it works yeah <laughs> we're not going to change a thing for several million years it's like, like a toyota truck it, yeah like, yeah like, like, why did say, you ever change that thing? i it was, was working great crocodile just, alligator like that's mm-hmm. that's like maybe as close as we have in modern times just break the mold yeah yeah, yeah. Right. well the communication thing i don't mean to be dismissive of that at all you know i just i think there's we've had a narrow definition of what intelligence what communication is and there's a lot of species that do that you know any kind of life form has to communicate gather information from its surroundings and you know relay information in some way yeah and it it, just because you don't have a human-shaped brain doesn't mean that you don't interact and communicate and Right. You know, discern what's going on in your environment and meet up with others of your kind and make more copies of yourself. Like every species does that and has to communicate and has some kind of a function around how they do it. Mm -hmm. So it's another area where humans kind of have to get over themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, We've managed to avoid staying away from, from any of the deeper darker political stuff which oh has which is good yeah. um yeah because it's kind of plagued my thoughts on on bringing the show back it, the the previous recordings of our show like we didn't have this post-trump post uh gray clouds hanging over the sky mm. yeah so so i wanted to make sure that we we focused on i mean it's not like we only sat here and talked about happy mindless things today that's not the point mm. but just not on focusing on what's been sort of all consuming for the last couple of years this is my oh so are we going to take a dark turn here no i was going to say <laughs> this has been a delightful change of pace uh, no, it's been okay great. yeah no, well, really, good because really enjoyed it but we do yeah. usually try and press people for like uh, like a little bit of what do you do for fun yes oh you know like what's What's a fun day? In your Aside life, from canoeing life? in the oh. wilderness, I, right. <laughs> I, that obviously sounds like a, a winner. Oh well, to me, life is just one long camping trip interrupted by a need to come into town for periods of time. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and Will Steger have that kind of thing. Well, in yeah. Oh, yeah. that's a, I'm in good company. That's flattering yeah. to be compared with Will Steger. Yeah. I mean, he's done it on a far more epic scale than I have. But uh, I think of. Like, even living in Minneapolis, like, there's camping at home kind of stuff, you know, like, make a fire and cook stuff in the Dutch oven in the backyard, or, you know, put out the offering every morning, listen to the birds and see who's coming around and talk to my trees that I've planted or haven't planted. And, like, it's all just a continuum of living in the world whether it's in the wild or not like it's not like i flipped that switch off in my regular life um and doing things like woodworking wood carving is a way to honor the bodies of the trees you know Mm -hmm. that you know make objects that are useful or beautiful with you know the use of my carving tools um still do the bread baking not on a professional scale but you know, stuff for at home, Um, language studies, reading a lot of books, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, life's just a big, long camping trip. I like that. There's, uh, 
you know, maybe it's the era or the place or the just kind of personality or whatever, but there's a part of me that uh, sort of holds in some kind of mystic regard people who can... I'm trapped in both worlds, I feel mm. like. I'm I'm part uh, technical and digital and, and modern and whatever, and then part of me could absolutely spend infinity out in the woods, too. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, like those... You know, five hundred long, five hundred mile long uh, wilderness canoe trips. That's not long enough. I could be out there. That's great. But at the same time, I, I sort of enjoy some parts of the modern trappings of the weirdness of life. Yeah. Well, this is why, uh, thinking back, maybe why I haven't gone on those extended sojourns is because when I graduated college, <laughs> first thing my mom said, not even congratulations. First thing she said is. I don't want you to go to Alaska. Promise me you're not going to Alaska. She knew you'd never return. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I, like, I, I okay. I was like, did your mom say that to you? Because that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I purposefully did not go to Alaska when I was uh, right out of high school. My my uncles had all been, or a couple of them, and they told mm. the stories. And a couple of my friends, Ryan Quigley, and uh, another friend that I worked with, went up, and I purposefully did not go because I believed I would never return. To mm, mm-hmm. At that time, uh, but I started right around that same time taking those canoe trips, and I knew that I had mm-hmm. to bring those people's kids home. Yep. I, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. They, they want you to do that. Yeah. And, and, and you're so, even supposed to keep them safe the whole time. That's right. part of the deal. Yeah. Right. Whatever. Um, <laughs> no, but it... it uh, I was afraid of Alaska for that reason. And now my little sister and her husband and their kids live up there. And I've been, I drove up to visit them. Mm. And it was great. And I, it's, uh, but I've been so long in, in the city that I, I also, I feel like the call to be completely isolated in the wilderness. Like I, I'm too social for it. I think, I think mm. I, get, I need to be around people a little more than that. Or at yeah, least I there's used a to be. Balance for everyone. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Well said. But I did satisfy the far north urge because I've been to Norway a bunch of times and above the Arctic Circle, you know, in the midnight sun. It's pretty amazing. And in the south end of Norway, I've been to the farm where my great grandparents left from. Oh, wow. So, you know, I've really reconnected with that part of the heritage. But still, you know, there's still Swedish Lapland where I got to go and see where. Yeah. Great grandma on the Swedish side came from. Yeah. She accidentally burnt the house down and then came to America. Uh, <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> wink, wink. Accident. How old was she? She was 17 years old. So and, was she, yeah. was she uh, to know that she accidentally did it or whatever, was it, um, yeah, was it a wink, wink, or was it like uh, the... Was she living with anyone else at the time to verify this accident? Yeah, well, we know all this from her journals that she kept, which is great because most of the time you look up family history and it's just, you know, where they were born, where they got married, or where they died. That's about it. Yeah. You know, but she left behind this journal that's pretty detailed. And her life in 1900 was not much different from a Swedish farm girl from the year 1600. You know, it was. Right milking goats and doing farm work and cooking the goat cheese, which requires a long, slow fire. And as a teenage girl, she was kind of impatient and overheated the fire, and a spark flew up onto the roof of the house, which is made partially from birch bark. You know, birch Mm -hmm. bark is the first layer, and then it's (laughs) bricks of turf on top of that. So the place goes up in flames, and she relates in this journal how she ran to the barn, got an axe to cut a hole in the wall to dive in and get baby brother and the cream separator out. You know, priorities, right? Right, so, right. right. And her mother had already died from some illness. You know, that was common back then. And dad had already kind of taken up with the farm girl next door who was coming over to help out in the absence of the wife. So she just looked at it like, okay, I just burnt the house down and uh, I got nothing. I'm going to take off to America where there's other Swedish people living in this place called Minnesota. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so she's butchered some of her sheep and dried the meat and made some blankets and 
packed the trunk and came to Minnesota. Wow. Um, but this I don't is know if you know the other journal. side of what all of this is about, but <laughs> like uh, our first digital project, Andalin, is all about preserving those types of memories. Mm. That's like, yeah. that, like way deep into what yeah. this whole thing that we're doing is all about. I did note that on the you know, research about what you're into, and that's really great. Because um, we appreciate when we can find, my wife's getting into her genealogy too, but when there's journals of stuff left behind, you know a whole lot more of the interesting stuff other than, I don't know, I guess they were milking cows and fishing and, you know, fighting over religious stuff, you know, and that was right. it. That's yeah. all you know about them. Right. No, I mean, the Andalin product is a digital scrapbook that, that mm -hmm. allows anyone in the family to sort of put their their memories to it. And that could be photos or videos or written memories. So, like, it's exactly the reason is because I figure if if it's that important, if you enjoy hearing that stuff from 100 years ago, and I know I do, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or 120 years ago, I, anything I can figure out about when you can... When you can find something, even if it's a photo of the journal or whatever, if you can find something that relates you back to that ancestral heritage, mm -hmm. uh, like, I figure they're going to want to do that 100 years from now or 200 years from now, too. Mm -hmm. Like, yes. someone may, if we yes. persist. Yeah. Um, so why, you know, I don't, what I don't want to do is uh, give them my Facebook feed and let them figure mm. out my life from that. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean... Well, that's not you. No, and I, you know, that we're we're not doing a great job of archiving the actual history of our of our lives anymore. When we stopped doing scrapbooking, when we mm -hmm. stopped having people who were family archivists, and we think that all of this direct communication that's happening all the time is us being closer and closer, but it's not. It's oh, the, it's paradox. I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I say, yeah. you know, if we're going to use the technology, if the technology exists, find a use for it where you actually do something that might be meaningful down the road with it. That's being a good ancestor. A future ancestor of the future, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's, I Brad think about, about that. Yeah, a lot. That um, if we're being responsible ancestors, not just like taking better care of the planet that we're on, but like leaving behind something of ourselves that's not just the names and dates and facebook feed or whatever right you know yeah. like so yeah what am i going to leave behind to tell about what my thoughts were about things or my experience about caring for trees and all that kind of thing like i know for a legacy project i need to capture all of this well that timeline from washington to la yep. and you know the 30 years of work that i've done of discovering how to care for trees yeah and it's really not caring for trees it's caring for a fungal network that keeps trees alive that's yeah. what i'm starting to discover <laughs> right so yeah legacy is is a big important thing and it yeah. folds back onto that druidry you know because for yes. druids it's about you honor the ancestors whether they're your blood ancestors or the ancestors of the place where you come from like the ojibwe the dakota mm -hmm. or there's the ancestors of the future, like the generations that are still to come, you know, like look at that whole microscopic to telescopic view of what this is all about. Yeah. Like what are our lives going to add up to when we're gone? Are we just dust and worm food or is it like something someone else can build on in a meaningful way? Yeah. I've been thinking about this for years. <laughs> I mean, this is really fun. Yeah. I'm glad you invited me on to this. You are speaking my like, language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I made the choice as a young man not to go to Alaska, but to start working at this boys camp. And then I persisted. I stayed there for 15 or 18 years or whatever it was. Mm. Um, and other people would leave and go start their careers. And then I'd get the questions of like, when are you going to get a real job? Oh. And I'm like, well, I don't know, but I kind of think this is like the most real job I'm going to find. Mm. Like, I, you know, mm -hmm. just, yeah. I, there's something about this working with kids and shaping mm -hmm. things and bringing them on these experiences that they, you know, are going to change their lives. Like this feels like the most important thing I'm going to find out there. But, mm -hmm. you know, as a result, I, I'm in my mid forties and maybe not as financially successful as mm. some other mm -hmm. people, but I don't really care too much. about that. Well, so. we almost went down that same path. I mean, after 
after college, I was going to pursue environmental education. And this was the mid-late 1980s. And there wasn't, you know, a lot of gigs at all out there. And it's not like now every school, every college has an environmental studies program and a organic farm and a windmill and a whatever. <laughs> right, right. Like, I just got very frustrated trying to find gigs that would keep me afloat and pay off student loans. And that's where the bakery upbringing really helped. I just punted and said, okay, whatever, I'm going to hunker down in a Minneapolis apartment and work for some bakeries for a while and save up money till the next adventure. And that brought me to UC Santa Cruz to ecological horticulture. So that, I guess, instead of the wilderness trips, it became, how can I responsibly raise food for myself and my community and, you know, be a steward of the earth along the way? And then that kind of meanderingly dropped me into urban forestry, arboriculture, how I ended up here now. Yeah. So, yeah. And then along the way, taking little wilderness trips to... Yeah, you got to clear your mind. Yeah. Boundary waters and places yeah. like that yeah. and... Off to Norway and Sweden and Germany and that kind of thing. Well, I love yeah. it. Um, we have definitely managed to fill a little over an hour here wow. in total time. So that went fast. I think we're going to wrap it up. But okay. Kent, this was uh, really, really fun having you in. Is there anything you want to say before we... We get out of here. Like uh, anything? What? So, what is this thing that you're that you were recently accepted into? Oh, it's called the Green Communities Leadership Institute, and it's a training program that's starting up in the new year. And it brings together professionals, you know, in the stage of career where you know you want to network with other people and bring your leadership up to a level beyond just kind of working in your same company or. <clears throat> setting where you've been and I liked it from the way it was advertised as you know where arborists city foresters um, landscape designers different people in the kind of silos in the green industry could come together more mm -hmm. and leverage their efforts and share their experiences and and do bigger things with that so I love it yeah that sounded pretty good to me yeah, yeah. it sounds <laughs> yeah. sounds pretty good to me too yeah yeah. Well, and you are uh, an arborologist with Rainbow Tree Care here in Minneapolis. And mm -hmm. I don't know, um, you know, we sort of let people plug. Like, if you were a musician, this is where I would say, like, you got any gigs coming up or something, <laughs> right? But but you're in tree care. I mean, I think Rainbow has a fantastic reputation, so we're happy to mention them here. And uh, if people are looking for advice on this sort of stuff, I assume they can reach out to you through Rainbow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it happens all the time. I just got a phone call for some random guy down in Illinois today. I have no idea. And how he found my number, he just said, everyone tells me you're the guy I should talk to about this. And I'm like, okay, well, what can I help you with? Yeah. But yeah, that happens all the time. Great. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming in, and we'll have you back sometime. Oh, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah. This has been a blast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, thanks. Kent. Of course. <laughs> Bye. <clears throat>